0: is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. And no nation which expects to be the leader of other nations can expect to stay behind in this race for Spain.
1: Rest in peace.
2: This episode has been brought to you this by Broughts Broughts Beard by Care. Beard. Amazing <laughs> products made right here in Central Florida. almost messed that up again. Uh, in City of Winter Garden by Kelly brought himself. Go to Bratsbeardcare.com and check out all the Product line he has there, including our signature 3B blend, which right now the reviews on it has been spectacular. So go to broadsbeardcare.com, use promo code. And am I the only one that's got that echo? Yeah,
1: you're the echo. Okay. Let me see
2: what we got going on here.
1: You're good
2: now. I think you got it. Okay. Yeah, we go. I think we got it. All right. So sorry about that little technical difficulty there. So go to broadsbeardcare.com, use promo code ThreeBeards with a capital B. and You're going to save twenty percent off your entire order and you get free shipping on all those so at this time we would like to introduce our guest of the evening mr david s brody he is a boston globe best-selling fiction writer um unless i've miscounted at least 12 novels correct sir uh 13 14 on the way all right there you go is he you know graduate of tufts university and georgetown law school former director of the New England Antiquities Research Association, and you're an avid researcher of the pre columbian exploration of America. You've been featured on many things from the History Channel to PBS to Discovery Channel. You've got, I, th- I think it's 10 now in the in the Templar in America series. Right. right. That's great. And so you can find out more about him one through his his site davidbrodybooks.com or you can go to amazon.com and check out on him follow him there as a favorite author and buy up his entire collection and he will love you for it i'm sure <laughs> and we so welcome to the show thank and, you appreciate being on oh you absolutely and also joining us is mark eddie our secret agent booking man he occasionally shows up for us and helps us out on these things and apparently is changing it up tonight because he's wearing clothes. So we yeah, appreciate and, what you're doing. And about. how, how, you, how about this
0: beard, too? Like everyone <laughs> yes, has facial yes.
2: hair. Yes, we're starting to... I, I like it. I like it. It's... It, it's. You need, we got to keep that up. Definitely. So, well, yeah. So tonight we are talking about his wheelhouse, the Templars in America. We've we've had a couple of... In, shows where we've touched on this subject and I've become more and more fascinated with it. And this is where David Brody comes in as our expert panel for it. And so we want to welcome you in. And I'm not really sure where the best place to launch off is, but at the same time, I just I mean, most people know a little bit about the backstory from, from the rise of the Templars to the persecution, the scattering but where kind of pre-show, I want to talk to you, and I think maybe we'll start here. Where, where do you think the first instance of the Templars setting their sights on the new world and coming over here in, into the Americas was their goal? Yeah, so for people who don't know
3: the backstory, it was Friday the 13th of October in 1307, unlucky Friday the 13th was the day they were outlawed by the King of France working with the Pope. And the idea was the the king of France wanted to basically take the Templar treasure because he owed him a ton of money, and what better way to get rid of your debts than to kill off your bankers, right? So that was yep. the idea. So he raided the Templar treasury in Paris, and it was empty. Basically, the Templar treasure the Templars must have had early warning, and they and they spirited their treasures out of uh, France. And and to this day, no one's actually found the treasure. And one of the theories is that they is that they took it by by um, overland to a place on the western coast of France called uh, La Rochelle, and from La Rochelle up to Scotland, and then eventually they hid their treasure in America. Okay, so that's sort of the short story as to how they found their way here. When they first did that, I think, I think that probably go back a couple hundred years prior to that, and there's evidence uh, even earlier of sort of the writing being on the wall that the, that the, that the Templars had learned some secrets while in Jerusalem in the early days of the Crusades, the early 11th century, secrets about, you know, whether it was the secrets of Jesus being married to Mary Magdalene or other secrets of Christianity that really didn't jibe with what the church was preaching in Europe. And the Templars came back and said, hey, you know, we know the real truth. And the church said, keep your mouth shut. We don't want the real truth out there. We like what we got going now. And the Templars and the church started butting heads. And at some point the Templars said, you know, this, this gig is going to be up at some point. We saw what happened in the Albigensian Crusade in France where the church went in and wiped out all the Cathars because they were practicing a different version of Christianity. We need to have a plan to get the hell out of Europe, if necessary, with our treasures. And so they probably heard rumors while they were in the Middle East of you know ancient lands off to the West. Uh, one thing led to another, and they found their way here prior to being outlawed. And then, of course, once they were outlawed, the remnants of their order i think continued coming over across to america looking for a place to settle hide their treasures but that's sort of the shorthand of you know started before continued after they're they're put down
2: yeah because one of your books i uh, apologize that um title's failing me right now but it, it deals around um i say i can look it up here too it deals around the arizona you know aspects and i want to say isn't that the is that the powdered, powdered gold gold. book Yes. Oh, yeah, so probably
3: in the story, and that, that's sort of a little bit different than what we just talked about. That that that's um, a time frame that doesn't really fit in what we what we just talked about. That that's a time frame mm-hmm. that goes back prior to the Crusades. There's some fascinating lead artifacts in Arizona that you know fifth, sixth century. Um, but I, I guess the, the big the big picture is the big story is is that you know we know that. Columbus was here in 1492. Yippee. We know that the, the Norse, the Vikings, came across as far as at least maritime Canada in the early 11th century. But I, I think there's been a series of explorers coming across, Mediterranean explorers, back and forth, starting with the ancient Phoenicians, the Irish, the Celts, the, the Welsh, perhaps. Um, you know, this is not the, – the, 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 we sort of view the Atlantic Ocean as some kind of barrier, but really it's a highway. And the ancient people again starting with the ancient phoenicians uh they had boats bigger than columbus they navigated by the stars they were definitely traveling up up as far as uh, great britain to get tin to make copper they were coming around the coast of the tip of africa up to the middle east so they were they were seafarers and so they either would have intentionally or just being blown off course eventually found their way to america um, so, again, there's waves of explorers coming back and forth, the Templars just being one of many groups that found their way across.
2: Yeah, because I know, especially um, I was because one of the questions like there was a few interviews ago, um, they talked about it. And when you look at the Horn of Africa, you know, I think not the Horn the West Coast of Africa and <laughs> the East Coast of um, South America, that distance is dramatically shorter than what people are picturing, like Spain spain to the americas right so it's entirely yeah
3: yeah it just, and so it, just,
2: just, it, just no, being blown off course at some point yeah yeah and so, there were, there were so artifacts and that's now. one of the things yeah because one of those because you know try not to get too far off topic here but it's because they found artifacts like egyptian artifacts in the amazon that shouldn't be there right. you know golden tablets that should not be here and here we have cartouches, you know, and you're you're looking at it like this should not exist here. So it's it's within the realm of possibility that these cultures could have made it over to here. And that's I mean, what a better way to try to avoid the Vatican and get away from its reach than getting your stuff over to the New World because this isn't like I said, this isn't a normal way f- you know, way stop for people.
3: So so think of it this way. So we know the Norse, the the you know, the Icelandic sagas. They came as far as Vinland in the year 1000, 1002, 1000. They came back and forth four or five times. We know this. No, no one debates that. And we know they came at least as far as Newfoundland. And now most historians say that was a stopover point. They continued further south into Canada, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, perhaps Maine, perhaps Cape Cod, but at least as far as New Brunswick. So that happened. So it's only a hop, skip and a jump down the coast to get to Cape Cod, Narragansett Bay. We'll get to the Newport Tower in a second. And, and, and to me, it would have been more surprising that after the Norse came over in the early 11th century, that nobody came until Columbus 500 years later. That would be the surprising story. Not that people did, but the people didn't because there were plenty of good reasons. After the Norse discovered all this, they came back. They talked about timber. Timber was hugely important in the Scandinavian area to build your ships, you needed timber, but most of Scandinavia was deforested. If you look at Greenland as an example, deforested, so you needed timber to build your ships, trading with the natives, all the all the fur and, and, and pelts and whatnot, um, fish, of course, Georgia's bank, but there were plenty of really good land. I mean, land was at a premium in Europe. There's plenty of really good reasons to come back and forth. You would have kept it secret, of course, but to me that would have been the bigger story that the, the Norse came over four or five times and then stopped and then no one came again until Columbus. It's not surprising at all to me that we had waves of explorers back and forth during that time yeah, period, a, probably
2: before. That's a really good point. I mean, it, cause especially like you're talking like timber. I mean, you're, you're having between Canada and at that time, you know, the Americas, there you would have had entire stands of timber that could easily be harvested, you know, for making ships and everything else that you need over there. So, I mean, this would be a, just a vast wealth of resources from that, just shipbuilding materials to everything else, you know, like the copper, right. the ancient pit copper mines in Michigan.
3: Right, they, na- they named, uh, it was Vinland, Heliland, and Markland. Heliland means um, timber. So they named one of the spots that they came to after timber because it was so important. Um, and you mentioned the, the copper culture in the Great Lakes just a, a second ago. Mm. Um, that's probably why the earlier explorers would have been over here, the Phoenicians. We know that they were they were getting tin uh, on the southern coast of England and Cornwall. To make copper, you needed tin, I'm sorry, to make bronze, you needed tin and copper, 90% copper, 10% tin. So we know where the tin came from. We don't know where the copper came from, but the Great Lakes region had huge amounts of something called float copper. So the Phoenicians mm-hmm. are coming out of the Mediterranean, out straight to Gibraltar, up the Atlantic as far as England, southern coast. Did they continue on? We know they went as far as Iceland. Did they continue past Iceland all the way to the Americas? Probably. Again, plenty of reasons to do that. And that would have been, you know,
2: 1000 B.C. in that time frame. Yeah. No, and that's, you know, kind of one of the things Dennis Stone, you know, we had him on, too. And, you know, you see some of these structures, too, yeah. that and, you know, I know some in some camps, they believe, you know, native cultures, you know, gla- glacier stuff. But one of the ones like especially with Amer- America, America's Stonehenge, I looking at some of these structures these to me have such a level of intricate construction, you know, leveling precise measurements where this seems like a, some, somebody group, whether, you know, the Templars, you know, early Freemason groups would come over and create these things because they seem to have more of a purpose. I mean, one of the things I want to touch on was the Westford Knight. you know, you start seeing some of these carvings and things and it's, some of this evidence is leaning that there was something of a culture that knew how to make and how to construct these structures other than just, a, hey, I stacked a couple of stones and it looks cool.
3: Yeah, so we know the Native Americans did at some time build stone structures, but not, not very often mm-hmm. and not very elaborate. They obviously didn't have tools to allow for, um, you know, they didn't have metal tools to allow for stones to be worked. And so when we find stone structures that have been worked or designed similar, it's a, called a core belling technique, similar to the chambers uh, in the British Isles. We see structures like that in America. When the architectural, uh, that's another thing entirely, but that's the Newport Tower. But as far as the, the, the chambers oftentimes match the construction. Um, but let's talk about the Newport Tower, because to me, if we mm-hmm. want to talk about the towers in America, this is probably the best evidence we have. Uh, this tower is in Newport, Rhode Island, um, the traditional historians will tell you it was built by Governor Benedict Arnold the great-grandfather of the trader Benedict Arnold and they argue he built that between 1675 and 1677 as a windmill to grist uh, keep you know, uh, to replace a, a mill that had burned down huh. there are so many reasons that doesn't make any sense um, not the least of which is just architecturally it's clearly a Romanesque style if you know anything about the the, the Puritans—they didn't build in the Romanesque style. I mean, every you see every no. colonial structure in, in New England, nothing looks like that. Mm-hmm. That makes no sense at all. Is it designed for a windmill? And the 1675 to 77 time period, which they say it was built—that's exactly the time period of something called uh, King Philip's War, the Native American Chief metacomets uprising. So you might build a stone fort during that time period to protect yourself, but you wouldn't build a stone mill. It's too big a luxury. People don't realize that that war on a per capita basis was the bloodiest war in American history. Hmm. Many of the the colonists thought they were going to get pushed back to the, you know, across the Atlantic. So again, you just wouldn't build a windmill, an elaborate windmill at that time period during wartime. But there's a lot of things about that that scream out medieval. It matches all the architectural features we see in medieval
2: round churches, Templar churches in Europe during that time period. Well, you, you make a great point too on that, um, you know, about the structure. Because if you look at most colonial structures, there there's nothing that has that architectural thing to it. Especially when you have something utilitarian, you know, a utility thing like a mill, some you know, it, all those things were they were basic construction, square block. They they would build it. They would not it's go to the point. Yeah, they wouldn't ha- they wouldn't see any value in having these elaborate arches, having these fancy you know placement of stones it was just like get we need to mill. you know we need to mill the grain build the structure yeah
3: can you put that picture back up again the newport tower can you put that back up again because a couple things about that we've had structural engineers look at that and and we say that the theory is that that there was a a, you know a, a windmill there was a sail put on it and they just laugh because the way that tower is designed all the pillars support vertical weight but there's no support whatsoever for any kind of lateral force. When you have a windmill, that's all you have is lateral force. They said any kind of significant wind, that thing's coming down on you know day one. Huh. We've never have supported the the lateral forces in, in, that a windmill has. And then secondly, there's a fireplace on the second floor, and anybody who spent any time on a farm knows if you start lighting an open flame around while flower. you're gristing your fire, the boom. It just makes no sense on so many different levels. So, so the mystery is, you know, who built it and what is it? So, that, and that's why we, we got back to analyzing the architecture. The, the unit of measure is a Scottish L. The construction technique is very similar to Scottish, um, other, other Scottish structures in, in uh, the Orkney Islands and in, in, in and around um, Roslyn. Um, there's just so many things about it that tie back to the Templars. Uh, there's an amazing winter solstice alignment illumination that that looks a lot like the kind of things you see uh, at Roslyn Chapel as far as nature worship. So there's just a bunch of different pieces of evidence that you look at that and everything sort of points back to uh, the, the Templars in the late 14th century probably would have built that. The remnants of the Templars would have built that type, that structure.
0: Hmm. Yeah, uh, David, uh, since, since you were just mentioning the Scottish L when the uh, Newport Tower has medieval features um, ha, yeah, ha, you, you work in the uh, legend of um, prince or uh, henry sinclair and his, his voyage what, um, how, how does his um uh, Voyage to America about a hundred years before Columbus. Uh, change our interpretation of uh, America's history with you know yeah. Columbus was
3: the first European right. to. So, so the the legend of Sinclair Mark, you know the story. It's that it was thirteen ninety eight Sinclair. The Sinclair family, by the way, is. It's in the middle of all this. So going back in time of the original nine founding members of the Knights Templar, that one of them was married to a Sinclair woman and, and the Sinclairs had a long and, and close association with the Templars during their entire existence. And, and in fact, and then going forward, when the Templars were outlawed, many people think they sort of resuscitated themselves or, 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 or resurrected themselves as the Freemasons. And the Sinclairs were the hereditary grandmasters of Scottish right Freemasonry for a couple hundred years after that. So both going backwards in time and forwards in time, the Sinclairs were right in the middle of this. Um, Prince Henry Sinclair, this is 1398, uh, who we think came over to America. Uh, his grandson built Roslyn Chapel, the famous Roslyn Chapel, which we can talk about later, 1456. But they're in the middle of all this. And so what we think happened was 1398, Prince Henry Sinclair, who had a fleet of ships. And by the way, even though he was Scottish, on his mother's side, he was Norse. So he would have had passed down through the generations, maps, charts, all history of how the Norse came over to Vinland hundreds of years earlier. This would have been mm-hmm. part of his upbringing. Again, he had a fleet of ships. We know from Vatican records that he was the guy who brought the bishops all the way to Greenland and Iceland. So he was halfway there already. Uh, probably heard stories from people on Greece, Greenland and Iceland that there's more land to the west. Uh, and again, the, the Templar treasure we think ended up in the Sinclair area, up in Roslyn. Roslyn uh, Chapel hadn't been built yet, but Roslyn Castle was in existence. And it would have been Sinclair who continued over, we think built the Newport Tower. We think he was here uh, as part of a voyage to hide the Templar treasure and look for a safe haven for the remnants of the Templar order that had been outlawed. And then, oh, by, so the west Eye, your question. So while, while in Massachusetts, <laughs> they came across... Uh, while in Massachusetts, I came up the Merrimack River uh, in, to a town called Westford, which is about 30 miles inland. And there's a carving of a medieval knight, uh, uh, basically it's, a, it's, a, it's an effigy of, a, of, of we think uh, Sir James Gunn, one of Sinclair's lieutenants. Do we have that rubbing, by the way? Can you pull that rubbing
2: up? There's a I think we have yeah, we a rubbing have that, of a, should have that image Sinclair. there.
1: Which
2: one? The knight one. It's going to look the, like a the Westford knight. I don't have that one. Yeah, it's, um, it's a little bit pink in color. Um, Did we not get that? Nope. I'll grab it right here. I'll...
1: The ones I have are this, the rock ones, the email
3: for some reason. Okay. So, the, the, again, the legend is in 1398. Sinclair came over the group of men. One of the guys died, and they carved an effigy in the rock ledge to memorialize his death. And that effigy is a carving of a, of a knight. Uh, and, the, and there it there is. There we so go. Like, and you can see uh you can see his head his shoulders his shield and most importantly his battle sword and this is what very similar to other effigies you find in Europe at the time a medieval time period that you know the any any knight worth assault wants to be buried with his sword and so that's what we have here that that effigy is still visible today in westford it's hard to see the head and the shoulders and the shield but the sword itself is very apparent and it's a medieval battle sword it's not a colonial era saber or dagger of any kind. It's medieval, two-handed, you know, Mel Gibson in Braveheart hit you over the head. It's called a, a claymore. And there's, there's a, it's hard to see the, the, the peckings in the, in, the, in the rock ledge there, but um, we've got some better pictures of that. But you can definitely still see the sword. So that's the legend. The legend is it was a medieval sword carved in 1398. But there's a lot of other artifacts uh, in the surrounding towns and communities around Westford, Sort of support that you know. We've had other other artifacts uh, that are similar to that of uh, something called the boat stone, which shows a medieval boat and a crossbow arrow. And that stone we were able to send to um, Scott Walter, the geologist. Many of your your mm-hmm. many of the viewers probably are familiar <laughs> with. There go. Uh, that was found uh, about a mile away from the Westford Knight carving. Uh, this stone, because it's not part of the rock ledge, we were able to ship this out to Minnesota to a geologist who put it in his lab and, and, and looked at it under uh, powerful microscopes and determined that the weathering patterns inside the carved areas of the stone, the stone itself has been weathering outside for probably 12,000 years hmm. since the last ice age, but the carved areas exhibit different weathering patterns than the surface of the stone. They're, they're that, that, that Those carved areas, obviously, are not 12,000 years old, but you can compare the carved areas to the surface and determine how long the wind and the elements have been playing on that carved area, how much of the mica has worn away, how rounded are the grains. And you can make an estimate as to, as to how long it's been out there weathering. And, and Walter's opinion was that the carved areas of that stone, the, the the arrow and the ship and the numbers at the bottom there are consistent with an artifact that's been weathering outside for about 600 years. And that dates us right back to around 1400. So, other, even though we haven't been able to do that same kind of science on the Western night carving, because, again, it's part of the rock ledge, we can't move it into a laboratory. This kind of stuff, um, uh, similar technique, um, dates back to the same time period we're talking about. This is another artifact. This is in Newport, Rhode Island, close to the Newport Tower. Uh, it's a Latin inscription, In hoc signo Vinces. vinces. That is uh, a Templar battle cry. Under this banner, we are victorious. Hmm. Uh, so, Theory is that when the Templars landed along the shoreline here before building the Newport Tower, they carved this, uh, this this carving into the boulder uh, that was uh, had been lost to us until a big storm hit Rhode Island seven or eight years ago, and and the, and the sand blew off of it. And every high tide it covers back up again. You have to know where to go to find that. But again, another piece of evidence. And again, there's seven or eight of these different carvings around that seem to indicate a Templar presence pre-Columbus. That's
2: awesome. I was I was kind of you know we talked a little bit prior to the show when you're coming on, you know you have the show Curse of Oak Island. You know they're talking about those things, and you know if you've watched on the show, they they talk about markers, and the first thing I saw when, when I saw that image of the boat stone, the arrow, was there? Was it recorded where the stone was located? I mean, yeah, in the exact um, placement. So you know maybe that arrow was uh, directional.
3: Yeah, that that's exactly, that's a really good point, um, Craig. And and believe me, I spent a lot of time in the woods around there. So the, the, the marker was found, the, the stone was found in the 1920s during a, a project where they're widening the road. Importantly, the road that they were widening was an old Native American trail. So in colonial time period, of course, you built your roads over the trails. There was no reason to, to blaze a new trail. You just continued on with the Native Americans. This happened to be the intersection of two ancient Native American trails. That's where the boat stone was found. So they were widening one of them, a road crew, and they found this stone. And they took it and they brought it first into a barn and eventually a museum. But unfortunately, no one recorded the orientation of it. Oh. And in 1959, uh, uh, an archaeologist, an amateur archaeologist who belonged to the same organization I belong to, New England Antiquities Research Association, went out there and started pacing 184 paces in every different direction he could find to see if he could stumble upon anything, because the number says 184 with an arrow. If you want to pull that back up again, you can see the 184 and the arrow. Uh, So he went into the woods and sure, no, one before that. There you go. a little the boat there, it was 184. And sure enough, he found uh, the remains of an old, uh, what looked like a foundation, 184 paces into the woods. And um, then he died and he never did any more research on it. And then about 10 years ago, when I first got involved with this, I found his research and I went out and found the, the, the foundation and I went back to the town records, the old deeds and the, um, the old maps, the old town maps and stuff. There was nothing ever in the town records of any kind of colonial structure in that area at all. So one possibility oh, wow. is, is that foundation that was found, that he found, that I refound. it was uh, two or three stones high, 40 by 30 feet. That, that may have been the site where Sinclair and his group spent the winter. It was a, again rectangular. They would have built a little low wall, and then what would have done? What they would have done in, in that time period is take your boat out, flip it over, and make that be the roof of your structure, and sleep okay. underneath yeah. that. So that one of the so we think that and again it's right along uh, the the western nights near the a river, and they continue up the river, and you find the boat stone, and the the, the pieces all connect, the, the dots all connect nicely as to where they would have gone during that time period.
2: It's yeah, because uh, yeah, I was just going to ask you that too. That was cool that you um, brought up the part of the river. I was just going to ask you if the boat played something into that directional, like if it was, you know, sail this direction, you know, this, yeah. you know, this distance, you know, and that it could it, be so kind of kind of like it was way more. That, that, that boat, yeah,
3: I'm sorry, that, no, no, that, go ahead. that boat just like the sword. is it's not colonial. It's not a colonial era boat. It's a medieval boat called a, a NOR, knorr k n o r r. So again. You know, if you're if if it's during colonial time period and you're and you're just a kid and you're going out to carve, you know, into a stone. I'm not sure why you do that, but if you were doing that, you would carve a sword and or a boat that you were familiar with, not a sword and or a boat that were 400 years earlier, right? Just you didn't have encyclopedias and the internet to know what to even what they would look like at that time period. So you know, common sense plays a part in this analysis as well. For anybody that's question. There's your boat. Yeah, there it is. Good job.
1: Tiny boats, man, I'll tell you what
0: Oh there's so hey there's a Smithsonian calling the, uh, <laughs> to
2: tell us where the
0: uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> giant uh,
2: yeah are buried. Like, hey Wait, hey we need to talk yeah we need to talk to you about that stone. It's gone.
0: Hey uh, <laughs> uh, we're doing the show with the beardos
1: that's funny
2: How about that yeah no that's <laughs> It, that's what I said. This is this is our program. This I, that's expected.
0: <laughs>
3: yeah,
0: it was like the. So, uh, so it, Craig, I, I like the to toy.
2: Yeah,
3: I like you know my my training as as an attorney, and you know I'm trained to sort of analyze and critique and weigh and and uh, parse evidence. And at some point, I, I look at it like, can I present this case to a jury, and, and am I going to win the case? And not any one of these pieces of evidence is probably enough to win it, but you start having 10 or 12 of these in a row and it just becomes the whole total. It's called the totality of the evidence. Yeah, It's like there's a lot of just coincidence going on here or there's something There's to something it. really is going on. And, and you know, pick, take your choice, but you know, obviously I know how I feel on this, but when I first started looking at this, 14 years ago, I only knew about a couple of the pieces and I wasn't totally convinced, but the longer I do this and the more the evidence comes in and, you know, year after year we get more of it, it continues to support what we think happened. Late 1300s, the remnants of the outlawed Knights Templar coming across here looking for a safe haven. And it does tie into the, to the Oak Island story, by the way, I think that, you know, I think it makes perfect sense that they would have hid their treasure up there. It's, you know, it's, it's the first thing you hit when you come across Nova Scotia, basically. But
2: so it does make sense. Well, that's, you know, all joking aside, you know, just, you know, where it's just like for the love of God, people find something, you know, just give us, just throw us a bone, you know, <laughs> yeah. pull, pull something up, you know, that's not this little fragment. But I mean, it, it would, it would make sense that if, if you were in the process of quick load it up on the ships, we got to get it out of here. You're not going to just land a boat is loaded with gold treasure and just leave it sitting out there because you have all manner of boat traffic coming back and forth and that's going to be easily seen. So you've got to get it. And if you have a group, you know, I won't go too long with in here, but if you have a group that has this ability to create architecture, it, it wouldn't be without the realm of possibility that they could build these elaborate, you know, traps and stuff to help protect it as it's down there on the bottom. Like they've been finding on this, on the Oak Island and so yeah, which craig, would make sense take, take it to the next level craig the, don't forget the templars
3: were in the middle east they would have spent time in egypt mm-hmm. and the pyramids have the same kind of booby trap flood, booby trap flood tunnels as oak island does so probably the way that the templars would have gotten the idea to build this would have been stuff they saw in egypt while they were you know exploring in the middle east so that's one of the things yes. that makes me think not pirates i don't I'm, i don't think of pirates as being really advanced engineers to be able to build flood tunnels but the
2: templars yeah. that makes sense. well especially with that discovery i can't remember it was a few seasons ago when they actually discovered the, the stone you know the stone flood tunnel they actually found one of the, the way it's layered and that would be and now actually as i'm saying that i'm thinking about um, going back to the newport tower the way that that's constructed you could almost see the same level of where they used the the layers they had, how they had those flipped. They had the layering of the different, you know, the different stone sizes. Well, and this ties back into what I said earlier that the, that the Freemasons
3: basically evolved into. I'm sorry, the Freemasons evolved from the Knights Templar, and even though the current Freemasonry is is speculative masonry, not operative mason, they don't actually build stuff with stone. Their roots came from Stone stoneworkers. And so there's an intimate, a long and intimate relationship between the Templars and stoneworkers. And most of that comes from the Templar uh, importance in building all those great cathedrals in Europe when they came back, Notre Dame or whatever else. But the, the Templars and the stonemasons and the Freemasons are all part of the same group. So stonework was important to them. Yeah, that, and that's
2: cool. Mark, you had a question?
0: Yeah, um, David, you're just talking about you know uh, you know since you're a lawyer, you have to look at the evidence and when it helps me. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, one, oh, one of your your echoes of Atlantis book um, is you know, a, a nice combination of you know like the light. Uh, the Prince Henry Sinclair legend. Uh, you, know, you know, you're you're also incorporating, uh, uh, you know, the legends of Atlantis. Um, you al- also work in science in, into all your novels as well. Uh, uh, Cam and you send Cam and Amanda to. Uh, Gobekli Tepe, that's, uh, what, 12,000 years ago. Right. Uh, It's like one of the oldest structures uh, built by humans. Um, But you're also, you know, so we have that sample of, okay, there is, uh, you know this ancient evidence. Uh, the carbon dating uh, proves it. Uh, but you also have the uh, your eel story <laughs> and the uh, nostophilia. Uh, yeah, can can so- you explain that aspect of the science that you work into your books, along with the you know looking at the Newport Tower is similar to the romanesque architecture
3: right so that's a good that's a good question mark because it's sort of um a broad way of looking at all this one of the big i get this question a lot is how, if if brody if you're right how come no one else has figured this out before you and it's not like i'm smarter than anybody else that's not like it at all partly it's because the internet allows us to look at all this evidence really for the first time from the with a touch of a finger but also if you're a if you're an archaeologist you're only looking at things that come out of the ground if you're a cartographer, you're only looking at maps. If you're a geologist, you're only looking at the rocks. If you're a liberal arts guy like me, and you know, all those parents who feel like they're wasting their kids' tuition on liberal arts, but the one thing is a liberal arts major can be is you can sort of look at all of this. And so when we look at as an example, uh, the the evidence of Atlantis, what we're really doing there is saying, let's let's not two things. One, what we, what we don't know is far greater than what we do know. It used to be that we thought Mesopotamia was the cradle of civilization 6,000 years ago. We all learned that, right? Where the Tigris and Euphrates rivers meet, that's where civilization began. And then Gobekli Tepe comes along, and it turns out, no, it's not 6,000, it's 12,000. So we've actually doubled the age of civilization. All those smart archaeologists and historians, they insisted that it was 6,000, and they were wrong by a factor of a half, okay? So that's a one lot. thing. <laughs> so Mark, yeah. so it is the whole eel thing. So it's not just archaeology, it's not just cartography, it's not just geology, but you have to use all the disciplines. And in the case of the eels, what Mark's talking about is that these eels, the freshwater eels uh, in America, come down uh, and, and into the ocean, and they swim out to the middle of something called the uh, uh, Sargasso Sea. I think I'm pronouncing it right, correctly, um, and that's where they that's where they spawn. Um, even though they're freshwater eels, they go back to the salt water to do that. And it turns out that the, the freshwater eels in Europe do the same thing. They come across and they meet their their cousins from North America in the middle there. And the point is, why would eels from both continents meet in the middle unless at one point way back in the past, they had both evolved from a continent that was in the middle? And when the continent sank, they went their separate ways. But uh, so Nostophilia the 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 instinct to go back to your native homeland is what brings them back for their spawning. It's not just the eels, it's the butterflies also. But again, that's science. And I get into trouble when I get too deep into science because I'm not a scientist. But the point is the big picture is that we need to look at not just what the what the archaeologists tell us and the historians tell us, because you know not all history is written. The Native Americans have a rich and 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 alive oral history that's important too. And they tell us, by the way, we'll talk about that hopefully the Native Americans tell us, yeah, that Prince Henry story, the Newport Tower, the Templars, that's all true. Maybe let's look at that that battle flag in a second. But Mark, to answer your question, the reason that's important is because we needed to look at all various disciplines. It's not all going to be told just from the archaeologists. And so often they feel like they have all the answers. They say, well, if it didn't come out of the ground, it doesn't count. And the, the reality is, look, when's the last time you ever stumbled upon an archaeological dig in your neighborhood? Okay. Very little infinitesimally small amount of the land has been archaeologically dug into, understandably so. But to act like all the answers come from these occasional digs is ridiculous. There's plenty of other pieces of evidence we can look at. Um, can no. we pull up that, that that battle flag, by the way, the Templar-Migamac flag? Do we have that? I set that over, I
1: think. Yeah, Julianne so, said, what's well, our obsession with Freemasons? And the funny thing is, is Chris isn't here tonight, and he is a Freemason. Um, and I just feel like we need to talk about Freemasons more because it gets brought up by everything we talk about, but we don't know anything about them, you know, and it's- yeah, and I'm,
3: I'm, I'm not a Freemason myself. I spent a lot of time giving lectures in their lodges, so I know I'm friendly with a lot of them. And, you know, obviously it's a key part of my research, um, you know, part part of the reason that. You know, so the question is: Are they are they an organization with secrets, or are they a secret organization? That that's really the, the dilemma. I think the answer yeah. is probably a little bit of both. But yeah. um, to and, and 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 the question the, to me the most important question is: Did they really evolve from the Knights Templar? And officially, they will tell you no. But when you sit down with them after a couple of you know, couple uh, cocktails at the end of a lecture they'll sort of nudge you and say, you know, the thing about, you said about the Templars, you're right about that. You're not supposed to tell me that, but they do tell me. And so I I have no doubt anymore that, that we're right on with that stuff. And Chris probably can't tell you that, but he could probably (laughs) wink at you
2: when when you mention it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, of course. The one time he's not here, we bring it up more.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, We're looking, it's, uh, he's not seeing that image. I mean, I thought that that one I sent over there did have it, Uh, yeah, I apologize. We're looking at that real quick. Okay, should I send it to you again, Craig? Or yeah, if you want, like I said, we'll get there. And um, no, I'll get. Can I send it by, by email? Or yeah, if you can send it by email, yeah, we'll get it there. Uh, so what kind of while you're doing that too? I was going to touch on you know when they said, well, why you you know if nobody else has, well, somebody has to be first. There's got to be somebody that makes the discovery. So you know why not you make that discovery? You know when people ask you, it's like, well, how come you've come to these conclusions?
3: Yeah, again, part of it is just fortunate to be living in the time of the Internet, because, again, 20 or 30 years ago, there were lots of people like me who found artifacts. I lived in Westford for a long time, so I, you know, I, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to look at the Western night and the boat stone and other things in the area. But as far as I knew, there were no other artifacts that sort of went with it in other parts of the country. Um, everybody had in their backyard one or two interesting ar- artifacts, But no one knew enough about each other's artifacts to put them all together so we all had one or two pieces of the puzzle now with the internet we can look at each other's pieces and say wait a second your piece fits together with my piece and that fits with mark's piece and craig your piece also and we're missing some of the pieces still but look at this there's a picture starting to form here before the internet you couldn't do that and so no look having said that and mark i'm not sure if you knew this i haven't written about this in any of my books yet i just learned this i used to think that whole prince henry sinclair story that that just came about in the last generation or two, starting in the 1960s or 70s. I was doing research on the the World Fair in Chicago in 1892, 1893, which was really a 400-year anniversary celebration of Columbus. And there were demonstrations in Chicago against that because there were a bunch of Scandinavians who said, wait, Prince Henry Sinclair discovered America before Columbus. So back in the 1890s, There were people doing the same thing I'm doing now, talking about Prince Henry Sinclair in coming to America in the 1300s. I was blown away by that. I thought, you know, like I thought this is relatively new stuff. But what's the expression? What's what's old is what's new is old. What's what's old is new again, right? What's old is new again. That this has been going on for 130 years at least. Yeah, it's so
0: it it's so old. It's new. Yeah, that uh, 1893 World's Fair is fascinating. uh, heard a little bit about it it's uh there, we go. It's <laughs> there, there are a lot of really interesting people attending that and you, you just wonder how how often they communicated and what were some of the influences that came out of that uh world's fair but you know, we'll save that for another show
3: Let's put that flag back up again.
0: Yeah, we do that's that again?
1: my fault. Um, there's a bunch of photos in the email that I didn't see. Here we go. <laughs> that's, that's my fault. <laughs> so, on on the question
3: of um, Native American uh, oral history, both the the Mi'kmaq tribe up in Nova Scotia and also the uh, Wampanoag um, tribe here in Massachusetts, both have have basically gone on record saying, yeah, that the whole uh, that the Templars were here. They built the Newport Tower. Um, the story of Prince Henry Sinclair is that he first landed in Nova Scotia in 1398 and overwintered with the Mi'kmaq tribe and then worked his way down in 1399 to, to the rest of New England, Massachusetts. But here you can see the Templar battle flag on the left hand side and the Mi'kmaq flag on the other. And again, it's one of those things like, boy, it's either a heck of a coincidence or there's some kind of relationship going on there. You know, yeah. like that's just a lot to to, to sort of explain away. Um, but again, the, the, the Native Americans. So even though, even though their old history is not written, it's still sacred to them. And they, and they pass it down generation to generation. Uh, it, it's no less important to them than our history is to our, us. They just happen to, to do it verbally. But again, their, their history is that this Templar group did come over uh, before Columbus. And they, they sort of laugh at the whole Columbus thing because they have a history of many ways of explorers coming back and forth, as we talked about earlier.
2: Now, this, this kind of touched a little bit on it, um, you know, and kind of back to what we were talking about before, too. One of the things, like, I've noticed, especially when you get um, to Gobekli Tepe, you get to all these things. I think one of the biggest things, like, I've noticed um, is I have a book, Forbidden Archaeology. I love that book. I mean, it's, it's a textbook. I mean, it's not something that you just pick up, you know, and you just flip through it all. But they even have pictures of the laser. It looks like a laser-engraved seashell. You know and it's it's these type of artifacts that are found and I think kind of like that battle flag kind of gobekli Tepe, they don't like to admit that these things exist because it takes your life's work and completely tosses it on end everything right. I've found in myself as my as I my profession my tenureship at this university is based off of this bedrock and I've built upon it well now we're ripping that bedrock out from underneath them yeah. and their whole tenure is now, Based off of something that no longer exists. Well, a lot of the researchers I work with in in this little tiny
3: corner of history I'm in, they they tend to sort of see this grand conspiracy that you know we joked about the Smithsonian hiding artifacts before, and mm-hmm. this whole conspiracy that people don't want this history told for whatever reason. I don't I don't necessarily think that's it. I think it's more um, like you just said, Craig, where people have carved out. expertise in a certain area and they become really defensive of that territory and they frankly don't want to have egg on their face by being proven wrong after spending 20 or 30 years telling everyone this is the way it is if they're wrong now they just look silly so they defend their position even against the evidence because it's just human nature i don't even blame them for it but i don't think it's a conspiracy i don't think it's a bunch of people sitting around you know in 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 a dust in a, in a smoky room saying, let's not tell the world. I just think people stake out a claim and then they, then they're stuck with it and they don't want to be embarrassed.
2: Yeah. Cause I mean, one of the prime examples, I mean, we, we talked about it just a little earlier too, Dennis Stone, America's Stonehenge. I mean that right there, that's one of those things where if this is true, if this is in fact, what, you know, this is hypothesized, this is a theory that these things, if these were correct, this changes everything. Like I said, all of us were raised with Columbus discovered the new world. We went through, you know, we go through that whole thing, and then we start hearing, well, no, the Vikings were here before, you know, Phoenicians were here before. If you start getting to the point where there were so many cultures here prior to this thing, this whole entire thing that all of us have been raised on is gone. I mean, you can't. You
3: know, I'm not sure when, when's the last time Dennis was on your show, but just um, back in September, the group I belong to, again, New England Antiquities Research Association, and people are interested in that. I recommend that organization it's it's short money to join 25 bucks a year i think and basically what we do we go out in the woods in new england and we look for these artifacts and these stone structures and we try to figure it out so one of the the things we're doing now one of our members died and left left us a bunch of money for research there's a a new technology called osl um it's basically luminescence and what we're really doing there is is taking a look at stone structures and um through a scientific process i want you to begin to try to explain you can you can take dirt beh- from behind a chamber or a stone from the inside of a chamber and 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 extract that in such a way that light, sunlight doesn't hit it when you're taking it out and bring it to a laboratory and determine when the last time was that that dirt or stone saw the light of day and that would presumably cool. be the date that wow. construction that's cool and by I, doing that we took samples at america stonehenge We've got eight or nine different sites in New England that we spent a week taking samples on, and those are out being tested now. But like you said, Craig, if we can determine that the construction date of America Stonehenge was just, say, 3,000 years ago, all of a sudden, that gives us a huge piece of information. Now, you know, that obviously, it can't be colonial. So now, is it Native American or is it something else? The Native Americans lay no claim to that site, and as, as much as they yeah. are, uh, are are very aggressive as they should be, in maintaining their historical sites, and and don't want anybody trampling on them. And that again, as they should be, they lay no claim to that site. That site, I brought an American, Native American uh, tribal elders up there, and they say this is interesting, but it's not ours. Hmm. So if it's not theirs, and it's three thousand years ago, who did it? Now we're like, okay, you know, you got you got to tell me it wasn't aliens. You got to tell me somebody who did it, and now we're left with Phoenicians. So we're waiting on those test results, but that'll be again, fascinating. I'd love to hear the, the results of that.
2: that. $20. i'm sorry what craig no I, I would love to hear you know the, when those results come back i mean if there's some way yeah. you know like i don't know if dennis is going to put those up on his site i mean just somewhere i mean if we could find it that would oh, be, yeah. man, well, we'll be fa- absolutely fascinating to get that
1: yeah
3: we'll be all over that unless it comes back as a colonial then of course we'll never mention it out loud no. like we'll be like the guys we just talked about no, no but yeah. seriously so we're, we're expecting those back um it's going to take a while because unfortunately the 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 guy who does this is, is a professor at a university and all his graduate students, no one's on campus right now, so we can't do any testing.
1: Huh. So
3: we're sort of yeah. stuck a little bit waiting for these things. To, there's a big and, backlog of work that needs to be done.
2: And, so and we'll for get anybody that's, that
3: topic. That's big news.
2: And for anybody that's new to it, if you have a sample that comes back with the information you don't want, it got contaminated. The sample was yeah. contaminated. We had to- An outlier, <laughs> an outlier. Yeah. yeah.
3: yeah. But I, you know, the lawyer in me loves that. Other than archaeology, what what professional discipline allows you to throw away evidence? I would love that, Your Honor. Yeah. We're gonna. I, I, I suggest you. I, I move, Your Honor, that we not look at the fingerprints that match my clients because let's just Kevin, get rid of those. Kevin, yeah. All right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
2: That's awesome. Yeah, we're yeah, we're pretty yeah, we're pretty that's sure. Lying. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> just you know, we we can't, you know. We can't go with that. No, no, no. That's not. We're going to work. Yeah, I, well, I just pick
3: on the archaeologist, but let's pick on the archaeologists because let's face it, they, uh, they, they for, again, they're the ones who keep saying, well, if it wasn't from evidence from an archaeological dig, it doesn't matter. Now, to their credit, the state archaeologists of New Hampshire did come with us to America Stonehenge when we did that luminescence testing. Um, that's cool, and and they are open to the possibility of that testing. Being a way to date structures, so that was good. That was a step in the right direction.
0: Yeah, uh, Dave. Um, you know, th- throughout your books, you, know, you have your characters going to a lot of uh, places across America, uh, researching these out-of-place artifacts. Um, yeah, yeah, you've done a lot of that. In, in in preparation for these books, um, you know you you did go to uh places like the Humbeden Stone Circle. i I'll probably yeah, okay. in, in the
3: yeah, it, and
0: yeah, well, you, uh, you saw the Ghent Alt Altar Piece as well. So you, you know, in, in that your uh, Treasure Templary book, you know. You're not looking at only, you know, really ancient uh, material. Uh, you know, you, you know, you kind of have like a an affinity for a lot of these uh, medieval uh, 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 characters, like Prince Henry Sinclair or this uh, the uh, Van Eyck uh, brothers. Uh, Artwork. Uh, right. So, so how do you incorporate all, you know, these travels in, you know, in, in, into your writing? You're, it's not just, you know, you're just Googling stuff and linking. Uh, you know, does the traveling make you more appreciative of the experience?
3: So the, the surprising thing is it seems like wherever we end up going in Europe, we run into Templar legends, Templar secrets, in the case of the treasure Templari, this this Ghent altar piece painting, which I think Craig just put on, or Viking put on the screen a second ago, um, which is something that was a fascinating story behind that. It's it's in in Uh Belgium. um, It's a piece of artwork that Hitler tried to steal during World War II, did steal during World War II because he was convinced it was a secret map to the Templar treasure. And we talked about the Templar treasure being spirited off to the New World, perhaps after uh, 1307 but maybe not maybe it's still in europe someplace who knows but hitler was convinced that this painting was uh, a secret map to the templar treasure and that sort of triggers that whole book but no matter where we went we went to the western coast of um, ireland and i was amazed to find out that christopher columbus had been there in like 1477 uh, and that he had spent time praying in a templar church And I use that whole thing to sort of trigger uh, the the um, the book of the Swagger Sword. Um, But it seemed like the Templars were such an important part of Europe for about 200 years. They were the most powerful force in all of Christendom, and they had their tentacles every place. And so it seemed like no matter where we go in Europe, we find really cool Templar things. And that you know that just oftentimes triggers another story. What's interesting, Craig? You had said we're going to spend an hour together tonight. And who mm-hmm. knows where the conversation is going to go, but you wanted to start by talking about treasure Templari. And it was like 56 minutes until we finally started talking about it.
2: <laughs> yeah. That is, <laughs> so yeah that's, that's kind of how it goes. It's, it's kind of perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love it because especially with those conversations is because we've gotten on so much other information that, you know, we didn't plan on in mean, me. I've been, like you said, it's 56 minutes and I've, I didn't even till you said that I didn't even realize we were already in the fifty-six minute mark. I was like, I've been completely lost in the conversation. I mean, it only feels like it's been twenty to thirty minutes, and that's you know that's awesome. And so that's yeah, that's cool. Yeah, the, wouldn't so I've, so I've written. Um, a,
3: I just finished my eleventh book in the series, and I, and I guess that's the the big takeaway for me. When I first started this, I had no idea I was going to go down a rabbit hole. And, and I had no idea, but 14 years later and 11 books later, I'd still be down there, you know, in need of a shower and a change of clothes, obviously. It's a long time to be down in one rabbit hole. But I had no idea how much stuff there was, how much information there was, how many of these artifacts there were. It's crazy. And, and like, again, we learned in law school, follow the evidence. And when there's that much evidence, something's going on. I mean, you got you got you to explain it somehow. You can't. Like you said earlier, you can't just keep throwing evidence away. At some point you gotta say, look, something's going on, I gotta pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. And so Mark, you asked about the research. To me, the research is even more fun than the writing because it just it just never stops. I just you know, once in a while, Mark, I'll circle back to you and say, Hey, I'm, I'm gonna do another book. You got any ideas for me? And you're the one who turned me on to all these fascinating artifacts in the Ohio River Valley that I just the book I'm just finishing up now, Roman artifacts in the Ohio River Valley, that'll be the next Time hopefully I'm on with you guys. So we can talk about that, but it just seems like it never ends. There's
2: so much of it. Yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to bring you on there because that was one thing I was going to tell you too, especially about your books. I've started. Um, I got the PDF and I've started reading the Templar, tr- the Treasure Templari, and I was, and I really like. I've fallen in love with this genre of writing the faction, the factions. Yeah, I it, love it. Yeah, that, yeah, I love that. Yeah. And it's yes, I one love, I, I enjoy that. You know, and I love the fact that, you know, you know, other writers such as, you know, James Rollins, Dan Brown have decided to follow, follow you and, you know, and use your style. You I know, don't think
3: they follow me. I think, no, you
2: know, no. <laughs> <you know. laughs> yeah. but, but the was, one
3: thing that I, the one thing I do that they don't do is I put pictures of all the artifacts in the book.
2: Yes, which mm-hmm.
3: is So awesome. if a painting or a artifact or a site or the Newport Tower. Ta- I want readers to know I'm not making that stuff up. That's the fact part of the faction, right? Those are actual. Now the story behind it is, is a story. It's fiction. But those sites and those artifacts, if they're in my book, they're real. And I want the readers to know that because
2: to me, that's the most fascinating thing of all. The stuff is actually out there. You can go see it. And that's that's what I love. It's just it's you have as I'm you know, as I'm only a couple chapters in on it so far, but I just I love the fact how you're able to craft the story around not only, you know, something that exists. It's, it's so cool to have a fictional characters, but you are engrossed in the fact that you're, you, I love, as you're reading it, you're forced to stop and Google. You're like, Ah, I didn't know about that. You know, I just say, you've got to go out there and you're like, Oh, I didn't know anything about this one. You know, and you start looking in here, you're like, Oh my God. you see the, all these pictures, all these things about it. And then you look back and forth and then you're right. So it's kind of like choose your own, choose your own adventure, but you're doing it, you know, and as you go through, I'm learning at the same time as I'm enjoying this visual movie that I'm, you know, experiencing as I'm reading your books. And so I've loved it so far. So very well done in that book.
3: Excellent. Thank you. I appreciate that. It means a lot. I know you're a big reader, so that means a lot to me. Thank you.
2: Yeah, uh,
0: Dave, uh, could you explain uh, how you have your books set up with uh, reoccurring characters, you know, like you're, yeah, you're so,
1: so it, like
3: it's a, similar to the way Dan Brown does it with, um, and I'm blocking on the guy's name, the, 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 the Tom Hanks character. the um, James Langman, Robert uh, Langman, Robert Langdon, yes. Robert, Robert Langdon, yeah. Robert Langdon, yeah. yeah. So same thing. Basically, the books are all standalone. You can pick up any one of them and start. You don't have to do them in order. But it's basically the same character, and he's on a new adventure. Um, you know, he's got a family that recurs well, and things happen. But essentially um, – Each of them is a new adventure. You can pick it up any place you want. Um, But the first one, Cabal of the Westford Knight, the main character, his name is Cameron Thorne, basically follows the clues of the Westford Knight and the Newport Tower in the same way that I did. Um, You know, sort of going through the... Pardon me, I'm sorry about that, guys.
2: You know, sort of going out
3: and and following the bread comes through the woods and figuring this all out uh, the same way I did. So, um, But again, they're all standalone and and uh, they're all different adventures, and uh, and boy, do I have a lot of fun writing them.
2: That's awesome. That's that's a cool way, David. I mean, you you definitely gave a teaser, um, especially that one. I need to, you know, definitely would like to have you back on if that's, you know, if you're willing to do that. I mean, sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, this,
3: you guys can't shut me up. I'll talk all day. <laughs>
2: about this stuff. No, that Mark. <laughs> <laughs> I love this stuff so. Yeah, that's that's kind of where we, we are. It's like we try to explain to everybody. It's just it's like we're laid back. We just we like to just have a conversation because there's no agenda. There's just I simply just want you know, want to, you know, get people's story that, you know, there's people like an audience that have never heard it before. And as we've been going through this, this is I mean, I, I won't lie, I mean I there's probably there was probably a really low chance I would have come across these book titles. But now as I'm reading this one. This is probably going to be the one where before long, I'm going to have polished off you know, every single one of the series because as I get into it, I absolutely love it. It's it's very well hey, done.
3: People who are into this, into this kind of stuff, they do go through the whole series. Now, it's not for everybody. I get that. But people who do like this kind of stuff, they eat this up. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I appreciate you saying that, Craig. Thank you. I, oh, you're welcome. You also
0: have really well-crafted uh International bad guys that are after the same artifacts that you know Cam and Amanda are studying. you know, know, do do have great tension, uh, espionage, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, look,
3: they're 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 they need to be fun. So, uh, Craig, you mentioned earlier, fact, they're factions. (laughs) What what I think of them as is. Um, you're going to learn something while you're on the roller coaster, but there needs to be mm-hmm. a roller coaster, a fun part of it, and then the knowledge yep. comes along with it, and it sort of adds to everything. So you got to have a good villain, Mark. You know, yeah. Of course. <laughs> no, yeah. Is that- no,
0: I, I, they're really well done, and, and it's, you know, I've to- told you that. Yeah, you know, th- yeah, you know, it, it's your novels are very similar to uh, like North by Northwest, Marathon Man.
3: Clive Kessler is a sort of a more modern version of that
2: kind of thing. Yeah. Kessler, Dan Brown.
1: Yeah. I can't wait. Well,
2: we, Start yeah, but we definitely, like when we get you out, well, we'll have to touch on a little bit more of like the Ghent Altarpiece, you know, and the not, you know, the Nazi angle of like what they were looking for so, um, since we're running out of time, but I, once again, go to davidbrodybooks.com, support, support in there. Do you have um Do you have a link on there for people to get a signed copy from you by any chance?
3: If you go to davidbrodybooks.com, there's a uh, button to email me. So you can email me if you want signed copies for the
2: holidays or whatnot. Okay, perfect. Because um, yeah. I want def- you, you, once I, you get to that site, you, you, can, you can find me easily on that. Yep. Okay, and then amp- obviously right cool. there, Amazon. And right now, um, just to give a just shameless plug to Amazon for our overlord, Jeff Bezos. If he's, you know, <laughs> as he's listening in, um, if you go to Kindle unlimited right now, you basically, for the price of the Kindle unlimited, you have access to your entire work. I looked in there and it's just that right now, yeah. these books are free for Kindle unlimited. And so as you read these, you know, as we learned from our other guest Max Hawthorne, you actually get credit the more, you know, the more that's read during these things yeah. that works for you.
3: Yeah, so from it's it's a good deal for authors. If you guys go to that Kindle Unlimited and you read my book, I make probably almost the same royalty as I would if you bought it on Kindle. It's not not a significant difference. And okay,
1: good. That's what I was worried about. Like,
3: yeah, like Craig, like you said, you know, people who read one tend to read all ten or eleven. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm happy to I'm happy to give them away honestly because I feel like you, as an author, there's an old saying, you never make money selling a book; you make money finding. You know, acquiring readers, acquiring fans. So, you know, yeah. oftentimes I'll give one or two away on Kindle, and hopefully people get interested. And then, and they're dick cheap; they're less than five bucks on Kindle. They're only fifteen bucks for the book itself. Um, yeah, that's so i Off, I-, I wanted to make money, but this is for this is a passion of mine, obviously.
1: Yeah, that's what happened. We had Dina Ray on. She, um, uh, I forgot the name of the book, but she gave us one free copy. Actually, two free copies. And then it was so good that I read through it, had to get the sequel right away. And I feel like if I get the first book or any of the books, I have to read all ten. It's just going to be a nonstop roller coaster. Or I have to get all of them.
0: Yeah, that was the, what, Crowns and Cabals? Yeah,
1: Crowns and Cabals. Mm-hmm. And um, what was the first one, Craig? I can't remember the first name of the book, but I, I bought the sequel. Um, because it was it, it was it was fiction, obviously, but she made it seem so real that I was like, this is scary. So yeah, I can't yes. read your
2: books. So everybody, well, go to
3: books. how many title, How many books you ever read in your life that have the cabal in the title? And that was my the cabal of the Western night. And then you had the other cabal. So yeah, I'm
1: excited. So there you I go. go. I really am. Right.
2: Well, Hey, so everybody, like I said, go to David books.com, go to Amazon, um, try out Kim Kindle unlimited. And you've got access to, you know, his works. And like I said, I, I can't, I can't personally attest for it, but I, except for the three chapters I've read and they are, Fantastic. There you are. So I highly recommend that. So thank you, Craig. Th- thank right. you thank again. You yeah, give um, give to the family. If, want you to please tell them thank you for sharing your time with us. You know because we know how valuable that is, and you know we can't thank you enough, sir. Yeah. Thank you. I really enjoyed speaking with you guys and meeting you guys, and look forward to doing it again. Yes, awesome. awesome. Yeah, we same here. I can't wait to the next one. So thanks again, sir. Mark. Thank you as well, Mark. All right. Take care, it's guys. Have a good fun. night. Thank you. All right. You all right. too. Thanks. Bye. And then, Mark, thank you again for joining joining with us. appreciate Appreciate it as always, and you know we'll try to get you on. And like I said, you don't...
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll be back next week.
2: Yep, yep, we'll get you on and from occasional ones because we, we definitely got to have you hand a little teaser there. We are going to foray into our first ever episode where we're going to tackle a subject that I know nothing, very little about, other than just I like music. Oh, I couldn't tell. Yeah, because t- yeah, we're going to hey, be. Uh, yeah, we have Mark on and Javier coming on, cause <laughs> yeah, with Boone, Boone yeah just you know, talking about his story and his the things he's involved with, um, the endorsement he's he's received, and I know Mark is a really you know really big fan of his um, friend, and I was more than happy to you know set, you know have him come back on again, to, and this one should be a lot of fun as well. So that like I said, we're looking forward to that. So. Mark, you know, thank you for wearing thanks. Thank you for wearing pants tonight. We appreciate it. Uh,
0: yeah, nice. and, and and not shaving. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I might have been mistaken uh, for being Chris. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. Well, sir, appreciate it. So we will we will get we will see you next week, and I'm I'm sure somewhere between now and then I'll be talking with you. So,
0: okay, well, I'll, I'll I'll be tuned in uh, to watch. You guys with my boss here in a few minutes. Yep. Yep. We'll,
2: we'll try. We'll try to dig up the dirt on you here. So. All right. All right, sir. Well, thanks. Appreciate you coming on with us. Thank you, Mark. I had fun. Thank you. All right. This is This episode it was brought to you as always by Broadbeard Care made right here in central Florida. Go to com. Use promo code 3BEARDS with a capital B, and you're going to save 20% off your entire order with free shipping. That bottle you just saw up there was a 3-BEARDS blend. It has been getting amazing reviews, and everybody that's tried it absolutely loves it. So check out all of his other the beard soap, beard balm. To make Lip sure balm. it stays in the place you want. Lip balm. Chris swears by that stuff. He absolutely loves it. Uh, they, he's got scissors. I use those all the time um, to trim the beard, comb. You just go through. Yep. He's got a complete line. Uh, just check him out. He's also got you know other, as it, there's gear. You can buy that stuff. So, you know, I can go on and on and on. Check him out. <laughs> go. go to, yep, Nanny, Nanny Cakes, Nancy Burke's other sponsor. Go to Nanny Cakes 407 on Facebook. Or, you can give her a phone call if you were in the central Florida area at 407-923-2898. And you will get an amazing deal at 15% off your cake order, which is, which is a crazy, crazy deal that she's given out. And if you're outside of the central Florida area, um, I think I can, we can convince her to in, put a couple of plastic forks inside mm-hmm. the you box for you too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're still, it'll still be amazing. And you know, if, if you want we can personally draw the 3b on the fork for you I'm sure I'm not sure if the I'm not sure if the sharpie will taint the taste of the cake or not but hey we'll at least do that for you so patreon. patreon.com forward slash Beards podcast become one with the beardos that is the, that is the way to do it we appreciate the support happy birthday to Chris's wife willisa I hope you enjoyed the little gift we sent you that was you know that was that was for you. <laughs> so yeah, happy birthday happy birthday to you and today is veterans day thank you to all the veterans we can't thank you enough for your service appreciate everything that you you did for us for you know yes. to ensure the freedom that we all enjoy that allows us to be you know bearded crazies on the air right now so How thank easy. you for everybody <laughs> that's right appreciate it everybody have a great night we will see you later good night